Good evening, everybody in Alberta, Canada, and beyond. It is Sunday, October 20, 29th. Wow, almost Halloween 2023. And I'm Carrie Lambert, and I welcome you to an online webinar, Evening of Solutions for a New Alberta, brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, also known as APP. APP's purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to protect the prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and sovereignty by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. Of course, we couldn't do this without your help. And APP is membership-driven with the goal of a million-plus members to help steer the political process. Uh, all you have to do is go to albertaprosperityproject.com. And uh, with that, this is kind of an extra special uh, version of our webinars and and there's been so much stuff happening in the news lately uh, and we also have all our Wednesdays booked thankfully all our Wednesdays are booked up with webinars all the way through until the Christmas season and this seemed like an opportune time in order to present this particular topic so tonight's episode is a replay of an Alberta Prosperity Project event that took place last year. I believe it was October 28th, uh, 2022, that had Alex Epstein as the keynote speaker. Uh, Alex is an American philosopher and uh, an author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and, uh, and of course, the book Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Gas, and Oil, coal and natural gas, not less. And as many of you know, of course, we do these webinars on Wednesday, and it just seemed to be a little apropos because it was Halloween, and uh, you'll see why I picked this one in particular, because I'm going to be doing the MC on this particular event, and of course, I was dressed up in my, well, you'll, you'll see what's going on here. And uh, so with that, uh, I, I also want to bring up a couple of quick things that have happened recently. Um, we've had the federal government and province lately, uh, throw a bunch of stuff about carbon tax, net zero, and it seems that Albertans and Canadians are being attacked by their own federal government. And if you want to see what's going on with that, here's a couple of quick things. These are, uh, Daniel Smith's, uh, uh, Twitter page, but I want to bring these up here. So if you look back, it was around October 15th, October 17th. Uh, they ruled that Bill C-69, which is essentially the Pipelines Act, was uh, ruled um, basically illegal. You, you, you can't do that according to the Charter of Rights, which is great, and which means that we can now take jurisdiction and hopefully we can actually do something with our own pipeline and getting our own resources out. That was part one. But part two, so I don't know if you've actually heard what happened uh, just this uh, past weekend or week where uh, the NDP Liberals basically said the carbon tax must end or will end based upon heating if you're in the Atlantic provinces. But if you're in the rest of Canada, no, you still have to pay your carbon tax on, uh, on that. Well, why is that? Well, because it looks like they're basically trying to uh, buy some boats. So no, no, no. And then one of the last ones here is... Uh, this is according to Goody Hutchings, uh, who's the Rural Economic Development Minister. If He basically said, if Western and Prairie provinces want to secure carve-outs in the federal government's carbon pricing policy, they should elect more liberal ministers. So it has nothing to do at all with uh, the climate change, et cetera, et cetera. It actually has to do with voting. 
and uh, very political. So with those in mind, I want to play back this video of us doing the uh, Alex Epstein event last year uh, at the at uh, the Western in Calgary. And uh, and it's about an hour and 40 minutes long. There is me briefly introducing Alex, a lot of information from Alex. And then we've got at the very end uh, question and answers with uh, Dr. Dennis Modry and, uh, and Alex Epstein. That happens all in the video. So Alex and uh, Dennis won't be joining us tonight, but we're gonna do a little bit of a question and answer. If you have questions throughout the, the, uh, the presentation, by all means, put them in and, uh, and I will do my best to answer them at the end. But it's one of these things that people, we have a lot of videos, a lot of webinars that, that are so good. They're re they really are so good. And they need to be replayed and, and looked at. So if you haven't seen this one, now's the time to do it. Uh, I actually have to say, first of all, I wanted to wait until the end of the Heritage Classic game. Congratulations to the Oilers who did defeat the Flames 5-2. to two. I didn't even watch the game. But having said that, here we go. We're going to play this, and uh, hopefully you can hear it. Uh, and uh, I'll talk to you in about an hour and 40 minutes. Excited. Really. Really, I am. I did a webcast uh, last, last Wednesday. We did it through APP, uh, a webinar. And we were trying to do this every Wednesday. Uh, Chris did one the, the other night. Um, and if, so every Wednesday, make sure you diarize it to watch or if you don't want to watch write it then it's it's definitely saved and we talk about all these different issues that are that are plaguing us in this new modern crazy world that we deal with and it was my honor to talk to Alex Epstein last week he is a philosopher and energy expert who argues that human flourishing should be the guiding principle of energy and environmental progress he is the author of the book fossil future May 2022, Penguin Random House. That's what it says in the notes here. And the New York Times bestseller, The Moral Case of Fossil Fuels. He is also the creator of EnergyTalkingPoints.com, a source of powerful, well-referenced talking points on energy, environmental, and climate issues. Widely recognized as a master of persuasion and debate on energy issues, Alex has spoken at dozens of Fortune 500 companies and dozens of prominent universities, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and Duke, which happens to be his alma mater. He is also a highly sought-after con consultant on messaging, working with dozens of major political offices on pro-energy, pro-freedom, and messaging. Ladies and gentlemen, our keynote speaker this evening, Alex Epstein. All right, so I'm gonna start out, uh, I have two questions. And I can guess the answer to the first, but I just wanna make sure. And then the second I'm very curious about. Um, so the first question, just raise your hand if you consider yourself an enthusiastic advocate of Canadian oil and gas. Okay, so this is probably the highest concentration of people I've ever spoken to. That would say, even I've spoken to a lot of oil companies, but I don't think the concentration is nearly that high. Okay. So here's, here's the next question, which is, on a scale of negative five to five, how good is the Canadian oil and gas industry at changing public opinion? 
Okay, so on a scale of negative five to five, how good is the Canadian oil and gas industry at changing public opinion? Now, first, there's a question that you should ask before that, which is why negative five to five? Why am I ranking this on a scale of negative five to five? Because there's a very, very important uh, reason, and it's why I actually rank all questions about communication on a scale of negative five to five. Can anyone guess? Who said that? It's very smart. Wow, that was quick. Have you heard me say that before? Oh, you've made things worse. Well, this is true. I think anyone who's ever been in a relationship knows that sometimes when you open your mouth, you can actually make things worse. And so when we're thinking about communication, it's very important because when you, when you rank things one to 10, it can appear like, well, whatever I'm doing, it's positive, right? I get a two, even that's something, but that's not actually how it works. Actually, the normal thing in communication is a zero, is you accomplish nothing. Uh, but it's very easy to make things worse. So I want people to be open to the possibility that maybe a lot of these efforts have made things worse. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna count down from five. So five is gonna be the peak. As like, if, if the Canadian oil industry was like Steve Jobs with computing, okay, and then zero is gonna be nothing, and then negative five, I can't, I have an example, but I don't know if it's gonna resonate with this room. Uh, but in the US, it resonates. I use the example of Amber Heard. Does anyone know that example? Here, okay, some of you do, okay. So enough of you get that. All right, if you don't know what that is, just imagine somebody who makes things much worse when they open their mouth. Oh, Trudeau? Well, he seems to keep getting elected, so he might not think he's making things worse. Okay, so uh, five. I'm gonna count down, just raise your hand where you identify. I'm guessing we're not gonna get many fives and fours and threes, but I just wanna be sure. So five, four, three, Two. Oh, we got a two. All right. One. Okay. Zero. So this means everything has amounted to nothing so far. Okay. Negative one. Negative two. Negative three. Negative four. Uh, negative five. Um, so, I mean, I'm inclined to agree, and it's, so, obviously it's a really sad situation, but there, there's one thing that's good news about it. And the one thing that's good news, and I have some other good news as well, but the one thing that's good news about the ranking is, it's, if you're not getting a result you want, it's a good thing that you're not doing the best possible job. Because imagine if the Canadian oil and gas industry and its supporters had been fives and this was the state of Canadian oil and gas. You know, this goes to the sad part, which is just how uh, embarrassing it is and how tragic it is, particularly right now when we have, I've been writing about Canada a lot lately, just writing primarily for the US, US audiences, because we've just got this global energy crisis where everyone wants more oil right now and we've got this allied country, speaking as an American, we've got this allied country that has this obvious giant deposit of oil that genius has figured out how to harness cost effectively and you're not using it to anywhere near its potential because your leaders are not willing to transport it to markets that want it. It's like such a tragedy and everyone wants it and you look at Joe Biden now and he's like, who's he going to? He's going to Venezuela. Right? He's going to Saudi Arabia and getting turned down. And yet we have this amazing potential in Canada in general and of course Alberta in particular. And it, 
it saddens me because I know how much it would benefit Canada, how much it would benefit the world. Uh, but I also have a personal story here, which Michael Binion sort of indicated, which is that I think it was, it was nine years ago that I first came here. And, and um, a supporter of mine, I won't give his name, I'd love to give his name, but he works at a big company and maybe he'll get canceled for being associated with me, so I won't give his name, but a really good guy. And he, he saw my ideas very early. This was before the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels came out, before almost anyone knew me. But he, he thought there was promise in my approach. And he brought me into Canada. And, and, and I specifically spoke with a bunch of leaders, including Michael Binion. So I think I might, met Michael on my first or second day here. And we had a long conversation. And I subsequently gave a bunch of speeches to different executives and different groups in Canada. And I was happy that people were interested in my views. But I knew at the time that I did not fully know how to help them. Because it's a very difficult thing to persuade the public about these issues. Because you're, you're dealing with a public that's been very indoctrinated on these issues. And why would you expect the oil and gas industry to be amazing at persuasion? That's not what they're amazing at. They're amazing at production, not persuasion. I knew that there was a role for somebody who could think really clearly, but more importantly, explain and persuade really clearly on these issues. And I knew that I could do this, but I also knew that I was very early in my development. And so I really could make some difference, but I really couldn't help people near, as much as I wanted to. And it was quite uh, frustrating. And I remember one experience I had was I was speaking to a group of executives, some of you know, the I think executive board of CAP uh, at the time. And I just remember like I couldn't even speak well enough to really get through. I got through to a couple of them. But I remember the, the best thing that came out of that was in advance of that meeting, I was trying to write down my ideas. And I had only been in this field for seven years or so, and my ideas were still developing. And I wrote out this essay called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, The Key to Winning Hearts and Minds. And I wrote it for Canadian executives. And a lot of people saw my speech and they're like, yeah, your speech wasn't very good, which that wasn't very nice to hear. But that essay was really good. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to write this out. And then I published that essay. And then an agent came to me and said, hey, there's this should be a book, a major publisher will publish it. And I said, I don't believe that, but I'll try. And then Penguin picked up the moral case for fossil fuels, which became a big bestseller, and sort of was off to the races. And what I'm really happy about speaking to this audience now compared to nine years ago, is now I have had 15 years to develop how to explain these issues to a science. And, I, and I'm not being very modest right now, uh, but I'm not being modest because I want to really encourage you to use what I'm going to tell you tonight and all of the free resources that you have available, including that resource that was mentioned, energytalkingpoints.com. So I've now reached the point where I know how to explain these issues extremely clearly to people who expect to disagree. And more importantly, I can give 90% of that ability to you because it's all written down on the internet in really easy to use talking points. And so I'm going to introduce this to you tonight. But everything I give you tonight is available for free um, online. So I really want to encourage you to use it. So my goal is really we have an enthusiastic audience here. I don't need to make you like oil and gas or coal for that matter, but I want to really make you powerful at persuasion. So I'm going to give you the essence of what I've learned. I think the most important things that I've learned that you can use immediately, but then I want you to promote that very aggressively. Okay? Deal? Make sense? All right. So I'm going to tell you to be an advocate, and I should practice what I preach, uh, so, and I do. So, you know, I have my I Love Fossil Fuel shirt. 
There are I Love Fossil Fuels pins at the table. Uh, we don't have enough for everybody, but we have at least some of them. Now, this is a very easy shirt to wear in front of this audience, but this shirt was not designed for this audience. This shirt was designed for me to wear at anti-fossil fuel rallies. So I'm going to show you a clip. Uh, if you like that, you're going to like this. I have a, this is a clip of me at the largest anti-fossil fuel rally in world history, to my knowledge. And there were 300,000 people protesting down 6th Avenue in New York, and I flew from California to pay them uh, a visit. <laughs> Do you hear what they're saying? Hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. I have a very different opinion on the matter. Uh, let's go, let's go see if we can engage. Can we just go stand in the middle? So you can see that uh, you can see that backdrop. And so I spent hours there. We have an hour of footage, and, and I don't know if you saw the uh, the slide, but I really want to encourage you to take advantage of it. So just all it says is to get this and other resources, email resources at alexepstein.com. So I want to basically you to remember two things tonight: resources at alexepstein.com. That's how to get a whole bunch of resources for free, and then. One of the ones I'll promote is energytalkingpoints.com. But resources at alexepstein.com, that's your key to a lot of the stuff, including you know, the hour of footage, which has some really interesting kinds of interactions. So I do, I do practice what I preach, but also I want to stress that people often ask, how do you do stuff like that? Like, why do you do stuff like that? How do you have uh, the courage? And you know, part of it is like, I, I don't know, I'm a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I'm a little bit comfortable with those kinds of situations. But, you know, I can't even beat up three people, realistically, or even two. So it's, and, you know, New York was more civilized back then. It's a little more dangerous now. But I think the main thing is that I actually do not experience it as courage. Because in my mind, it is so obvious that the world needs more fossil fuels and that the anti-fossil fuel movement is a movement that, to the extent it's successful, will prematurely end millions or billions of lives. That's so clear to me that it just seems crazy not to stand up when people are saying it. I mean, an analogy would be, I think, most people... Thank you. You know, I think an analogy that people might be able to relate to is, you know, sort of imagine that today where we're much more individualistic, at least in terms of issues of skin color. So the, the level of racism is, you know, much, much lower than it was 50 years ago. If so you sort of woke up in a place and people just using racial slurs all over the time, all over the place and saying we should have segregation, like, I think most people would just say this is insane. Like, you cannot do this. You wouldn't just sit idly by and let it happen. And that's what I feel like with energy. To me, that moral clarity is that high. And this is a controversial thing to say, but I think the industry hasn't stood up because it doesn't fully have the moral clarity that it's in the right. Uh, but good news, that clarity is possible and you're gonna get a lot of it uh, tonight. But I think that's, that's the root of it. And this goes to what I think is the most important thing for understanding this issue and explaining this issue and really why I have become the leading person in the world championing 
fossil fuels, certainly one of them. And that is my background. So when people see me at a protest like this, they'll assume things like, oh, you must, the fossil fuel industry must have discovered you and groomed you into this fossil fuel champion. That must have been what happened. And I didn't even know anyone in the fossil fuel industry, let alone have any financial relationship when I came up with my uh, ideas. In fact, when I first came up with my ideas, I tried to, I'm in California, I tried to visit some local refineries and none of them would let me in because they didn't think it was possible for somebody to be pro-fossil fuel. So they thought I was an eco-terrorist who wanted to sabotage them. Finally, of all places, BP let me in. But it was a really hard, it was a really hard struggle. So that's not it. And nor did I grow up, I didn't grow up in Calgary, as you can probably guess. I didn't grow up in Kentucky or West Virginia or Houston or Midland, Texas or any other pro-fossil fuel place. I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., which you may or may not know is not super pro-fossil fuels, probably kind of like Ottawa. Um, and so there's nothing there. But the thing that actually made me pro-fossil fuels, and I think is the key to making the world pro-fossil fuels, is my background in philosophy. When I was 20, I made a decision that many people said was a ridiculous decision. I was studying computer science at Duke University, one of the leading schools in the US, and I went into my advisor's office and I told him, I'm never programming again, I'm gonna become a philosopher. And he was very unimpressed by this career plan. And, uh, and he basically said to me like, why would you be a philosopher? Nobody needs a philosopher, nobody ever has a problem and says let's call a philosopher uh, for, the, for the solution. And I've gotten this reaction a lot in my life and energy, and I'll show you a clip. This is me testifying in front of the Senate Environment Public Work and Environment and Public Works Committee. My senator at the time, Barbara Boxer, this is 2016, she too thought a philosopher had no business being there, but then I explained to her why one did. Mr. Epstein, are you a scientist? No, philosopher. You're a philosopher? Yes. Okay. Well, this is the Environment and Public Works Committee. I think it's interesting we have a philosopher here talking about an issue. It's to teach you how to think more clearly. Well, you don't have... So that actually wasn't planned. Um, so, and that really just occurred to me because that's really what philosophy does and that's what's, what's needed. I'll explain this a lot in a second. Um, philosophy is really the subject that studies the fundamental ideas that shape our thinking and our action. When we're thinking about things and when we're acting in the world, there are certain ideas that we have that are moving us, and usually people are not aware of them. And in particular, there are thinking methods, there are assumptions, and there are values. And tonight I'm mainly gonna talk about thinking methods, although in the Q&A I might talk more about assumptions and values. And the thing that really got me into this issue, but also I think the key to helping people think differently about this issue, is to realize that the way we think about fossil fuels makes no sense at all. And this is important, Nobody can even defend the way we think about fossil fuels. So the way we think about fossil fuels makes no sense the way we're taught, including our leading experts. The only way that it works is that people don't identify it. They don't identify the right way to think about it and they don't identify the wrong way to think about it. And once you do, it's quite easy to show that even our leading experts are totally full of it. So let me make good on that because that's, that's a hard claim to justify. Um, so let me, here, let me just pull this back. And so there's one idea 
that I want to stress one overall idea and then it has three aspects. But this is a thinking method and the interesting thing about this thinking method is nobody has ever disagreed with me about this thinking method, ever. I doubt I'm going to find the first person in this room, but maybe. But I don't really think so. And yet almost no leading expert follows it. And so the, the, the thinking method is, you can call it full context thinking or full context evaluation. It's very simple. It's that whenever we look at any issue and when we're evaluating what to do about something, we need to look at the full context, which means we carefully weigh the benefits and side effects of our options. So easy example is in medicine. So let's say you're considering taking a prescription drug. Does everyone agree here that you should carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects? Does anyone disagree? Does anyone think you should just look at the benefits and ignore the side effects? Does anyone think you should just look at the side effects and ignore the benefits? Right? Either thing could be fatal. Right? You, could, you could have a fatal side effect that you get that you didn't know about, or you could be de depriving yourself of life-saving benefits. Does anyone think it's a good idea to exaggerate the benefits? Okay, no. Does anyone think it's a good idea to exaggerate the side effects? No. And yet, what happens constantly is that almost all of our leading thinkers do this. So I'm going to explain this by breaking this idea down into three parts. So the first part of looking at the full context is you need to factor in fossil fuels benefits. If I tell anyone, if I'm having a conversation, I say, hey, do you agree that we don't just look at the negative side effects of fossil fuels, we need to look at the benefits? What do you think people say? Yeah, everyone will say yes. They'll say yes, but, but people won't do it on their own. It's an obvious thing, it's common sense, but it is not common practice, and this is why it's such an opportunity. And this occurs at the highest level. So when I first got into this, I started realizing, wow, energy is the industry that powers every other industry. Energy decisions matter so much. I started learning about the very special properties of oil and natural gas, particularly how oil's energy density made it so, so good at mobility applications, particularly things like planes and cargo ships that essentially only run on oil today. And it's in large part because oil has this amazing energy density. And I also learned, and that's important for many things, including food. You know, our modern agricultural equipment uses diesel overwhelmingly because it's the most cost-effective way to power these amazing machines that allow, you know, 2% or something like that of the population to feed everybody. Or natural gas. Natural gas has these amazing properties that, among other things, make it the basis of modern fertilizer that's necessary for feeding a, a world of 8 billion people. And yet I noticed that the media never talked about these benefits. And I thought, well, that's crazy. And I thought, well, maybe the media is just not representing the experts. It's des what I call designated experts, the people it's relying on to tell us the expert opinion. Now, the media will often say, listen to the scientists. And so I looked into, okay, who are these scientists? And one of them is a guy named Michael Mann. This is just an example. Almost all of them do this. And Michael Mann has a whole book about fossil fuels and climate and what to do. And what's interesting is he talks about agriculture. And you would think, oh, he's talking about agriculture. Obviously, he's a smart guy. He's going to talk about the huge agricultural benefits of fossil fuels because they're crucial to feeding 8 billion people. And there's nothing on the horizon that is anywhere close to them at that. And yeah, and yeah, he'll also talk about the side effects that he's concerned about. He's a climate scientist and he's concerned about you know, rising temperatures and how that'll affect things. So I'm like, but in fact, he only talks about negative side effects. In his whole book, he does not once mention the benefits of fossil fuels for agricultural machinery or the benefits of natural gas for agriculture. So just think about how crazy this is. Nobody could ever defend this, yet one of our leading experts is doing this 
just this childish mistake, but it's being imposed on the world. And I think this is why we have the world in the state it's in. We have an epidemic of what I call fossil fuel benefit denial. We've been ignoring and denying the benefits of fossil fuels, our leaders have, and they've just taught us basically that, that getting off fossil fuels is free. And we're seeing with an energy crisis, it's anything but free. So this is one thing. Factoring in fossil fuels benefits, and the power of this is everyone will agree to do this if you make it explicit. But if you don't make it explicit, everyone will default, because of the way they've been taught, to only looking at negative side effects. So that's one. Now number two, and this is even more uh, ignored. Hopefully we can get this on the screen. It's much more interesting than my face. Um, this slide is factor in fossil fuels climate mastery benefits. So we talk all the time about the negative climate side effects of fossil fuels, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But if you think about what we do with fossil fuels, one of the main things we do with fossil fuels is make ourselves far safer from climate. I call this climate mastery. What we do is we take these huge climate dangers that exist in the world and we neutralize them. So for example, drought was just a huge climate killer a century ago. You'd, you'd hear of you know, three million people at a time wiped out by a drought and a subsequent famine. And yet now drought-related deaths are down 99% over the last 100 years because of things like irrigation and crop transport, both of which are powered by fossil fuels. And yet our leading thinkers, never mind the media, don't talk about this. And one example is there's this organization called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is part of the UN. And this is, this is revered as this is this, these are the best scientists. And there is some good science that it compiles, but it has a huge flaw. Its job is to synthesize all the relevant research and yet it does not mention at all the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. And it talks for about half a paragraph about the benefits of fossil fuels, period, in thousands and thousands of pages. So think about how irrational this is. It doesn't even mention that climate deaths are way lower than they used to be. Imagine a report on polio that didn't mention that we're far safer from polio than we used to be and that ignored the existence of the polio vaccine. Like, it's crazy, but this is what our leading thinkers are doing. But the great thing about this for persuasion is once you point out that, hey, fossil fuels have climate benefits too, people will think about it. But if you don't make it explicit, then they'll continue to think about it in a bad way. And then the third thing is that we have to factor in fossil fuels negative and positive side effects, particularly I'm going to focus here on climate, it applies to other side effects, with precision. So negative and positive, notice that when we hear about climate impacts, there's this assumption that they're all bad. But if you think about what CO2 is, this is a bizarre assumption. I think it's ultimately a primitive religious assumption that is based on anti-human, like primitive religious philosophy. Because why would we assume that when we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it's all bad? CO2, what do we learn about it? It's plant food. So that's a, actually a huge benefit of putting more CO2 in the atmosphere. So people think like if we impact things, that's bad, but you shouldn't assume it one way or another. You should look at it. So that's one thing. But then another thing is warming has a lot of benefits. There are a lot of cold places, including the one I'm in right now. Uh, and we'll talk about later, there are far more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths in the world. So what I'm pointing out here is not that fossil fuels don't have negative climate impacts, but that our leading thinkers and institutions are not even considering positives, which again shows a bias. Notice we have a bias to ignore the benefits of fossil fuels, the climate mastery benefits, and any positive climate uh, side effects. The other thing is the issue of precision. I've noticed that our leading thinkers will so often 
in particular the people communicating to the general public, will talk about climate science in a way that is not at all representative of the scientific literature. So for example, Al Gore in his movie An Inconvenient Truth, which was just spread everywhere, I mean so many school children in the United States got exposed to this thing, he portrays sea level rises as 20 feet in the near future. That's the portrayal. It's like all the ice sheets can make. That is not in the literature anywhere. As we'll see, the extreme projections are three feet in a hundred years. So think about how sloppy that is to equate 20 feet in a few decades with three feet in a hundred years. And again, that's extreme. So what I've seen is, what we can see is there are these three principles that everyone will agree with and that almost nobody follows. And this is actually very powerful because the key is making the principles explicit before you jump in to all the facts and arguments and this kind of thing. You want to frame your communications, including your conversations, with an agreement on how, on our thinking method. And basically the question is, do you agree that we should carefully weigh the benefits and side effects of fossil fuels? And I use this everywhere. If you look at my presentations, I use them everywhere because it's so, so true and it's so powerful. Because once you get people to agree with a way of thinking, then their minds are open and they will, they will actually think in a much better way. By the way, the way to do this is not to tell everyone that you're thinking about it wrong, particularly in a conversation. It's getting agreement to think about it in a way that you both agree with. So I'm, I'm stressing this so much because it's the key to thinking about it and persuading. And it's this thing I want everyone to do because if everyone did it, I believe everyone would come to more or less the same conclusion. And my conclusion is if you apply these three principles of the benefits, the climate mastery benefits, and the negative and positive side effects with precision, then it's obvious the world needs more fossil fuels, including more fossil fuels from Alberta. I think it's an obvious thing if you frame it correctly and that these net zero policies uh, will lead to mass suffering and death. And should not, I don't think the idea of net zero by 2050 should be discussed by civilized people, and you'll see why uh, soon. <laughs> so now that we have these three principles, and I encourage you to use these in conversation, what I'm going to do is share what I think are the 10 most important facts for getting the full context about fossil fuels. And I'm calling them 10 undeniable facts because these are all based on mainstream sources. They are very, very hard to argue with. Some of them nobody argues with, and yet the general public doesn't know them because the general public is not, to, not taught to think about the full context. So many of the climate the full context. So many of the climate facts I'm going to tell you are mainstream climate science. They, they basically all are, but you don't hear about them because there's so much of a systemic bias against fossil fuels and toward what I call climate uh, catastrophism. So these are undeniable facts, and I think once you get these, it's very, very powerful. The other thing about them is these are very, very powerful to use in communication. So I'm singling these out. I'm really going to encourage you to use these facts, and as I said, all of these are available, just email resources at alexepstein.com, or you can also go to energytalkingpoints.com. So none of this stuff is, like, I love speaking to groups, but I'm not one of these speakers who just tells you my inside secrets if you pay me a bunch of money, and then I'm not going to tell the rest of the world. Like, everything I tell you tonight, more or less, I'm, I hope you're happy to be here after this. Like, I share on Twitter for free. Like, I'm in the business, I'm trying to persuade the whole world, and I'm trying to give you guys material, and somebody asked me, can I put your material on my website? Yeah, copy anything you want on your website. I want everyone to use these arguments. Okay, so. So we're going to go through five undeniable benefits, and then five facts about undeniable benefits, and then about climate side effects. And so the first one 
is the one I'm going to go most in depth into. And you might not think it's necessary, but I think it's necessary because I don't think most people in energy have any idea how valuable energy is. And even you guys, I don't think fully understand how valuable energy is, so I just want you to get this fully. If you've read chapter four of Fossil Future, then, then maybe you get it. That's 90 pages on the point I'm about to make in three minutes. So this is very, very important. Cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing. So let me break that down. What is cost-effective energy? What is human flourishing? So cost-effective energy has four attributes. It has affordability. So how much can a typical person afford to use? Has reliable, re reliability. Can it provide energy when we need it and in the quantity we need it? That's very important, particularly with electricity. Versatility, can, what range of machines can it power? Uh, oil, in particular, is the most versatile fuel in the world, so it can power every type of machine. Many other fuels cannot power every type of machine, like I mentioned, airplanes and cargo ships. And then there's scalability. To what extent can it provide energy on a scale of billions of people in thousands of places? And my argument is the more cost-effective energy is, so the more affordable, reliable, versatile, scalable it is, the more we have what I call human flourishing. So what is human flourishing? Well, to flourish means to live to your highest potential. So human flourishing means a state where human beings are living more and more to their potential, including they're having longer lives, healthier lives, safer lives, more opportunity, more fulfillment, at least the opportunity for fulfillment. And I think one good, it's impossible to capture perfectly, but one good way of capturing human flourishing is what these statistics I have up here. And I call these the human flourishing hockey stick. So ignore the CO2 one for a second, we'll come back to that. But life expectancy, like human beings cannot be flourishing if they're dying at 30, and yet this was the normal condition for you know unlimited years, thousands of years in this chart, but going back way before that. And yet 200 years ago, that starts to go I know this metaphor will work really well here, like a hockey stick, right? In America, some people don't even know what a hockey stick is. Um, I should say in the US, some people don't know what a hockey stick. So you have that hockey stick. And then income, so GDP per person. So this shows how much does the average person have in the way of resources, which is crucial to flourishing in terms of like, if you don't have enough resources, you can either not eat or you can just barely do anything. You don't have much opportunity in the world. That's why, you know, it's Alberta Prosperity Project. It's about having sufficient material resources where you actually have the opportunity to have a really good life. And what we see with those is they follow the same hockey stick. And then we see population. Well, that makes sense because when people are actually living a long time and being prosperous, there's not going to be this massive die-off of people. And so the, po the world population is growing. Can we put up this slide one more time? And so what we see is we have these human flourishing hockey sticks, and it's really amazing. And what we see at the exact same time, now CO2 is interesting because we're taught that CO2 makes the planet unlivable. This is the idea, uh, you know, that you know, people are concerned about, oh, CO2 is making things worse. And yet what we see, interestingly, is that CO2 perfectly correlates with the planet becoming far more livable for human beings. Now, you should say, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. But sometimes correlation does reflect causation, and this is one of those times. So in this case, it's not the CO2 that's doing all the good work. It's the energy that came with the CO2. CO2 is a great proxy for how much energy we're using, since most of our energy historically and today comes from using fossil fuels. And so you have these hockey sticks, and my argument is these are very causal. So it's that the cost-effective energy we've gotten from fossil fuels 
is essential to human flourishing. And I said, I explain this in 90 pages in chapter four of my book, but the basic idea is pretty simple, which is that when human beings live in nature, it's not good for human flourishing because the planet is very inhospitable in its natural state. It's very deficient of resources and it's very dangerous in terms of a lot of threats. And the way human beings can overcome the inhospitability of nature is through productive activity. We need to produce value. You know, we need to produce factories and farms and shelter and food and clothing, etc. that nature will not produce for us and we need to produce protection against all of nature's many threats. The problem is, is that we are a very weak species, which means we have a very limited ability to produce. When we get all these modern miracles that Michael Binion is talking about, where do they come from? They come from using machines to produce value for us. That's really the key jump to prosperity is where instead of using manual labor, we use machine labor. But we can only use machine labor to the extent that it is cost effective. In an example I use, now some of you this won't apply to, but I call this the private jet problem. So has anyone here ever flown on a private jet? I don't, you don't need to raise your hand, but some of you probably have. A lot of you probably haven't. I, I have, but it was not my jet. Uh, I got to ride on one with Alex Trebek once, which is pretty damn cool, I have to say. Um, but uh, it's the thing with a private jet is private jet is amazing. Like most of us would take a private jet if we could have one, but a private jet costs so much. It's not cost effective for a typical person. Well, throughout most of history, all machines were like a private jet, or most machines were like a private jet. In some places in the world, a washing machine is like a private jet. It's not cost effective for a typical person. But the more cost effective we make energy, the more cost effective it is to have machines produce value for us. And this is really what the fossil fuel industry has done. It's made energy so cost effective that we can use machines to, to produce almost anything for us. And the, you know, the typical Canadian, typical American has machines do 75 times more work than our physical bodies. And that's why we have such a standard of living. So it's so important to recognize that what cost effective energy does is it empowers us to use machines to become productive and prosperous. And the more cost effective energy is, the more value we can produce using machines, and the less cost effective energy is, the less value we can produce using machines. Now, I have one bonus question, and again, this is by far the longest elaboration I'll give on a fact. And this is for, um, I have two copies of Fossil Future. I've been harassed all night. Why didn't you bring copies of Fossil Future? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did not bring them, but I have two for lucky winners, and I will sign them. And this is one of the opportunities to win one. You can also just order them at fossilfuture.com, although they won't be signed, but still encourage you to order them. Okay, so the question is, how do you address this counter-argument? So the counter-argument people will give is, okay, Alex, this is ridiculous. You're crediting fossil fuels for the world being so livable? No, that's not from fossil fuels. Look, it's from science and technology and sanitation and medical care, right? That's where the real gains come from, not fossil fuels. Like fossil fuels are bad for our health, right? You hear these studies, so-called, that say fossil fuels take five years off our lives. Um, so does anyone have a good answer to that, this argument? Like how are, is, is it really these other things and not fossil fuels? And by the way, there are three good answers to this and there's one that I have a particular like for, so you only get the book if you get the one I really like. Yes. So fossil fuels uh, are better for people's health because if we're using it, then uh, poor countries don't have to rely on, you know, coal or garbage or dung, things like that, which, you know, cause 
four serious health problems? Okay, this is actually a fourth one, and this is a good one, uh, but it's, it's a good one to mention. So one thing is pe when people think about fossil fuels and the side effects of fossil fuels, what they don't look at are what did fossil fuels replace? This is particularly true with natural gas, you know, which usually replaces dirtier fuels. But often when people aren't using fossil fuels, you know, they're using wood and dung. And as we'll see, there's huge incidents of using those around the world. So when you move to cleaner fuels, all things be equal, it's better for your health. But there are three other ways in which, uh, three counters to this argument. Anyone else? Chris? All of those things have uh, advanced exponentially because of fossil fuels. How? Through, uh, well, I mean, invention of plastics, uh, more efficient use of the energy to do more work, better, more farming, everything, um, all sorts of pharmaceuticals, and everything. All of those things are the foundation of fossil fuels. So great. So the good news is Chris got two of the answers. The bad news is he still didn't get the one that I really like. But they're really good. So um, it was great to meet Chris tonight. So one is that the material we get from fossil fuels is vital to all of these fields. So people don't think, I know you guys are really into this and it's an important thing, is just what you know, hydrocarbon-based materials do for the world. You know, what a hospital would be like without those materials. What a modern bed, for that matter, would be like without those materials. What a house would be like. Like these are, the material world we live in is so amazing and so much of it is based on hydrocarbon-based materials, including in science, technology, sanitation, medical care. And then the other thing which Chris was getting at is all of those, all of those fields are far more productive because they use machines powered by fossil fuels. Like imagine modern medicine without machines, modern sanitation, modern science, modern you know, technological advancement, not the same. But there is a final thing that I think is the most important thing. This guy is really confident. Yes? I say it's because it frees up time for people to use their creative abilities and have time to develop that technology. Have you read my books? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you win. Okay, that guy wins. Uh, thank so come and get a signed book if you don't have one already. Yeah, so what he said, I mean, I, I couldn't even give a better uh, wording, so I'll probably butcher his wording, but the idea is that what using these fossil fuels to power machines to do our work for us does is it frees up human time. And that is really the key to the emergence and progress of all of these fields. Think about scientific progress, how many scientists we have. Yes, they use machines. Yes, those, they use fossil fuel materials. But the main thing they use is time freed up by fossil fuels, because we're not all in the fields anymore, we can have professional scientists and professional and medical professionals and professionals in sanitation and professional people in all sorts of technology. And so that's a huge, huge aspect is it frees up the time for us to do these other fields and crucially to innovate in these fields. You get innovation when people have time to think. So there's this amazing, what I call virtuous circle of empowerment, where the more we use machines to benefit our lives and produce value for us, the more time we free up to think about how to be even more productive. And this is why for so long productivity was like this, because you could produce so little, you didn't have, even have time to think about how to become more productive. But once you start freeing up time with machine labor, then you have more time. Then you can think about how to make the engines more efficient and the, en the energy more efficient, have new jobs and stuff. And so we just have this amazing progress, but it's all rooted in cost-effective uh, energy. So, now one other thing that is crucial that I don't think people get, um, is the relationship between cost-effective energy and environmental quality. People tend to think of it as, you know, like, okay, energy is good, 
but it's not good for our environment, so we want clean energy that harms our environment less. This is a really backwards way of thinking about it, because actually the main effect energy has on our environment is to make it far better. The natural environment is very dirty and it is very dangerous. And one of the big things we use energy for is to make it unnaturally clean. Think about modern water. The, the anti-fossil fuel people have this image of the world, like it's naturally full of Perrier and Evian and it's just spraying everywhere and then the fossil fuel industry just contaminated it. But in reality, good drinking water is usually dirty and it's usually distant. And so we have purification powered mostly by fossil fuels you know, purification machines, and then pumping machines, mostly powered by fossil fuels. So energy, cost-effective energy, it's essential to human flourishing, and I argue it's really fundamental. The more cost-effective energy is, the more everything benefits, the more livable world, including the better environment. So that is the most important thing to get. Even if you're in energy, I don't think most people understand it. That's why I'm harping. So once we get this, the rest of it is actually pretty simple. So we're going to go through these pretty quickly. Billions of people lack cost-effective energy. As I've mentioned, this is key to the livability of the world for billions of people, and yet billions of people lack it. This chart shows one-third of the world, rather, using wood and animal dung for their heating and cooking, which is not a good fuel, certainly compared to what we have. There are six billion people who use an amount of energy that everyone in this room would consider a total disaster if we had to use that much energy. There are three billion people who individually use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. So the world is using so little energy right now, and yet it's almost never talked about. We talk about, oh, how do we use less energy? You know, the world needs so much more energy. So cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing, and billions of people lack it. Now, number three, oh, sorry, is fossil fuels are a uniquely cost-effective source of energy. So we talked about affordable, reliable, versatile, scalable. What we see with fossil fuels is they are the only source of energy today that, that checks all those four boxes. They are providing 80% of the world's energy, and notably, that energy is, the per, not the percentage, but the amount of energy is still growing. Despite huge cultural and political hostility, which I don't have to tell you guys about, and then also decades of aggressive competition, really generations of aggressive competition. So there's obviously something special about fossil fuels. I mentioned we have this epidemic of fossil fuel benefit denial, people pretending that fossil fuels are easy to replace. If fossil fuels are easy to replace, why are they 80% of the world's energy still and growing? And why are they growing in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy? You see them shrinking to some degree in places like Germany that don't seem to care too much about cost-effective energy. But look at China. China is producing almost all the solar panels and wind turbines, or the basic components of them, and they're using coal to do it. Did they not get the memo that solar and wind are supposedly cheaper? No, there's something special about fossil fuels that's causing China to use them dominantly and to keep building more and more coal plants, among other things. So we really have to recognize this, and it's really a crime that we don't talk about how important cost-effective energy is, how desperately needed it is, and how fossil fuels clearly are a unique source of it today. If you want to replace fossil fuels, at some point you need to acknowledge the reality that they are by far the best today. There's something very special. And I think to get, I get into this a lot in chapter five of Fossil Future, but just to give you an indication, there are two basic reasons for this. One is the nature of the materials, and then one is the nature of the industry. So the materials involved in fossil fuels, oil, coal, and gas, have these three attributes that are only shared by 
one other energy technology today, which is nuclear energy, which I'm also a huge fan of. And that is natural storage. So natural storage means that nature stored the energy for us, and we just have to release it. So all the leading forms of energy today are naturally stored energy. So oil, coal, gas, those are like natural batteries. Uh, nuclear is like a natural battery. Even hydro is because nature takes the water to the top of the river for us. Imagine if we had to take the water to the top of the river ourselves. It would be totally non-cost effective. But if you look at, say, solar and wind, nature isn't, isn't storing the energy for us, so we have to find a way to store it, which we'll see is very, very difficult. Um, and, it, and in practice, we usually basically just use fossil fuels as a battery to back them up all the time. So there's natural storage, there's natural concentration, storing a lot of energy in a small space and or in a small, uh, you know, small weight. So oil and coal, very small space and small weight, natural gas, large space in its native state, but very small weight, and we can compress it and we can liquefy it, which is increasingly interesting in the world. And then natural abundance, they exist in huge quantities. So this is, this is, it's very hard to compete with a source of energy that has these attributes. Then the other thing that fossil fuels have that the nuclear industry unfortunately doesn't have is they have generations of innovation to make them cost effective. There's been a whole industry, which I know many of you are in, that has figured out with fossil fuels, hey, how do we make this cost effective for every machine for billions of people in thousands of places? That's really hard to do. And the fossil fuel industry has done it. The nuclear industry has not basically at all, and I think a lot of it is because of the green movement, which is a really terrible movement that has basically criminalized nuclear and prevented it from reaching its potential. I'm a huge advocate of nuclear, but we have to recognize that nuclear has been stunted to the point where it is generations away from doing what fossil fuels can do today in terms of the versatility and the scalability. So now people will say, oh wait, but aren't solar and wind rapidly replacing fossil fuels? And that brings us to fact four, which is that unreliable solar and wind are failing to replace fossil fuels. So I, I will often just say unreliable solar and wind. I never say renewables. It is a ridiculous term for many, many reasons, including it usually excludes hydro. So how can you exclude hydro if you're for, quote, renewables? It really means solar and wind. And because those are unreliable, it should be called unreliables, which is the term I use that really pisses people off. Um, but you guys will probably, you guys might, you guys probably don't mind pissing people off. And so what we have to recognize about the unreliables is the, the facts is that they are not actually replacing fossil fuels. More broadly, there is no energy transition, right? This is just a, the, the, the two dominant terms used to describe energy today both refer to things that do not exist, energy transition and climate crisis. Neither of those is a real thing. I'll share climate crisis in a minute. All right, this guy's very excited. Um, so energy transition. Fossil fuels are growing. You're not transitioning away from something that's growing. What we have is an energy addition, but unfortunately, it's mostly not a market addition. It's mostly a forced addition. And if we look at solar and wind, what we find is they're almost exclusively, exclusive, almost exclusively used in places that subsidize mandate or otherwise prefer them. So that should be suspicious if we, we hear that they're cheaper. And then also, they tend to lead to higher prices where they're used, which is also a big flag. And then also they only provide electricity, or they partially provide electricity, uh, which is one-fifth of the world's energy use. And so this is, it's just a fact that they are not rapidly replacing fossil fuels, and certainly not in a market process. So there's a real question of why aren't, why are fossil, why aren't, aren't so-called renewables, why aren't unreliables replacing fossil fuels? Because you hear from Al Gore, well, they're free and forever, right? They use these natural forces, they naturally replenish, so why are they so 
expensive? And the basic answer is you have to think of energy as a process. When people are thinking, oh, they're free, they're wonderful, they're not thinking about the full context, they're not thinking about the full process, they're just thinking about, oh, the sun is free, the wind is free. I and mean, this is a really idiotic argument, but this is, this is very pervasive. To look at the cost of energy, you need to look at every step of the process of producing the energy. It's the same with the side effects. You need to look at the whole thing. You can't just say, oh, the Tesla has no side effects because there's no tailpipe emissions. You have to look at the full process of providing it, which is nothing against Teslas, and I generally like EVs. I just don't like them being forced on people. And I particularly don't like them being forced in California where we don't have any electricity. Um, <laughs> um, So when you look at the total process, then you see, wow, fossil fuels are really, really efficient. It's really hard to compete with them. And particularly with solar and wind, the biggest thing, there are many inefficiencies, but the biggest thing by far stems from their unreliability, which is the fact that they can go near zero at any given time. And so this is the example of the Texas freeze. I actually wrote an article about how Alberta did much, much better during that week, despite having worse weather, because you guys, you guys had better policies, although you seem to be moving away from those, uh, which I don't recommend. Uh, and you look at Texas, though, look before the freeze, it looks like if you take a snapshot, it looks like, hey, wind and solar are amazing. They're providing over half our electricity. But then what happens with a winter storm? I know this is a big surprise, but during a winter storm, you don't have much sun. And also, maybe this is less obvious, but you don't have much wind. It wasn't that the turbines froze. It's that you don't have much wind in these situations. So electricity got to near zero. These things have a supposed capacity, which is a ridiculous term. It just means fantasy of how much they produce under ideal conditions. And they were at 1% of capacity slash fantasy at one point. So that means they're basically zero. So when you have a technology that can go near zero at any time, what percentage backup do you need? You need 100%. So what happens with these things is you have to build the whole unreliable energy infrastructure including transmission lines and then all the equipment. And then you also have to build the reliable energy infrastructure. So it's not that surprising that building an unreliable energy infrastructure plus a reliable one costs more than just building the reliable one. Now what happens is, now this is what happened to Germany. This is why their prices are so high, is they had to pay for the unreliables plus the reliables. Now what other people would do, including California and Texas, tragically from my perspective, because I live in one place and really like the other, is they play what I call reliability chicken which is they try to get away with shutting down as many reliable power plants as possible, in part to contain their costs. But what happens when you do that is you are playing reliability chicken. So you are hoping that it doesn't get too hot or too cold, and you're hoping you have plenty of sunshine and wind. But hoping that was a, a legitimate strategy 3,000 years ago when people believed that weather gods controlled everything. But for modern human beings to be hoping for weather to get our energy is an embarrassment. And this embarrassment has consequences in terms of blackouts and people dying. So this is why these unreliables are not replacing fossil fuels. And of course, because they depend mostly on fossil fuels, it's not a replacement. It's a parasitical arrangement that usually adds costs. OK. So, so far, where are we? We are. Cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing. It's desperately needed by billions. Uh, fossil fuels are a unique source of it. They're certainly not being replaced by solar and wind. And so what we have really is already we know that net zero, as I said, should not be discussed in civilized company because if you think about it, the world will not be a livable place for almost anyone if we rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. And yet we're told to basically get rid of fossil fuels or most of fossil fuels in the next um, 
27 years. Someone, by the way, should ask me about the, some of the issues Michael raised because I have some disagreements about them, particularly um, like CO2 capture and the viability of that at scale. But I'll just say my view is we are definitely not capturing all the CO2 of fossil fuels in the next 27 years. And so if people believe that you want to be net zero emissions, that basically means zero fossil fuels in practice. And that means mass murder. And so we really need to recognize that the benefit of fossil fuels going forward is a livable world for billions of people. That's what people associate with climate. They say, oh, we're making the world unlivable. No, no, no. Fossil fuels made the world livable in the first place. That's what's making the world livable, not a particular climate. We had all kinds of climates, and we couldn't live in any of them until we had fossil fuels. Certainly not this one. Um, and uh, so now this gets to the climate part. The climate part is actually really simple. So we're not going to go on that much longer, because it's really simple once you get the benefits, because the climate side effects are so obviously not worth depriving 8 billion people of the benefits of fossil fuels over. And the key to it is actually understanding the fifth fact about the benefits of fossil fuels, which is that fossil fuels give us incredible climate mastery benefits. So this chart is my second favorite chart behind the hockey sticks chart. And what it shows is what has happened to climate-related disaster deaths as CO2 emissions have risen. So this is deaths from storms and floods and heat and cold, et cetera. What's happened is people have the impression, oh, those are going way up. And before I studied this, I thought, okay, of course they're going up, right? I thought they were exaggerated, but of course they're going up. But it turns out they've been plummeting. It's one of the greatest areas of human improvement in the last century is our safety from climate. You are one, the average person in the world is 150th as likely to die from a climate disaster as they were 100 years ago. And why is this? It's overwhelmingly because of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels power all these amazing machines that neutralize climate danger such as I mentioned before, irrigation machines and crop transport machines for dealing with drought. You know, building machines to build these amazing sturdy buildings that protect us. Storm warning systems are all based on uh, machines. Of course, heating and cooling, you know, which uh, in Europe, they're starting to learn the value of those, those heating machines. Uh, in the winter, you know, there are people in Germany who don't have hot water right now. Like that's being, that's a thing. You know, in Spain this summer, they said you can't go, I know you guys use Celsius, but I can't do the conversion off the top of my head, but you can't go less than 81 degrees Fahrenheit with your air conditioning. I mean, this is, this is uh, like, yeah, that's good. It is insanity. And so, but we have this incredible ability to master climate, and we need to recognize this when you think about the side effects, because what it means is that we can cure almost any climate problem. Notice we've been using fossil fuels and emitting CO2 for 170 years. We have the best world ever, and we're 50 times safer from climate. And we'll see we have one degree warmer. Why does anyone think that another half degree, another degree, another two degrees is going to be the end of the world? There's no reason to think that logically at all, unless you're just a fossil fuel benefit denier. And what we see is that this, is, this mastery ability is so powerful. So one example is sea level rises. Sea level rises, I think, are the most legitimate concern with warming because that'll lead to sea level rises and we built civilization based on certain sea levels. But nevertheless, we have 100 million people living below high tide sea level. We are really, really good at dealing with sea levels. So once you recognize the benefits of fossil fuels, including the climate mastery benefits, you realize that using fossil fuels 
means a world where we have the opportunity to become incredibly prosperous and keep making progress, and the opportunity to continue to be safer and safer from climate. And if you rapidly eliminate fossil fuels like the net zero agenda, the world will be unlivable for the typical person by our standards, and they'll be far more endangered from climate because they won't have all these amazing climate protection systems. So with that in mind, when you look at the climate side effects, to justify restricting fossil fuels, it would have to be something apocalyptic because it's apocalyptic to get rid of fossil fuels. And so when we look at them, it's, the question is not, are we impacting climate? I believe we are. It's not, is it causing any change? Is it causing an apocalypse that justifies a man-made apocalypse of depriving people of fossil fuels? And we'll see, this is very easy to answer. The answer is no. So I'm just gonna run through these facts. These are all mainstream facts. And people think climate is the biggest issue here? No, the issue is once you get the benefits of fossil fuels and you think about this issue in a careful way, it's obvious that you should use more fossil fuels. So fact one is our CO2 emissions in the last 170 years, they correlate with warming but it's one degree Celsius warming and significant greening. And if you look at the warming on a human scale, these are the ups and downs of New York, say, it is a very small amount of warming in terms of the human experience. Now people think, well, okay, it's gotten a little warmer, but if it gets any warmer, we're all gonna fry, right? Because the world is too hot. Uh, might not be as relatable here, but this is what people certainly think where I am in Southern California. But in fact, we have far more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths, which means that for the foreseeable future, warming is expected to save more lives, warming on its own, let alone the fossil fuels, save more lives than it, uh, than it costs. And then people think, oh, well, but it's gonna get totally unlivable at the equator and there, people are gonna die there and that's unfair. But then you look at the third fact, and this is mainstream climate science. This is from President Biden's climate.gov website. So this is not a pro-fossil fuel place, but it shows warming is expected to occur in colder places, particularly northern latitudes, during colder seasons, and at colder times. And so what this means is warming is gonna occur in places where it's more beneficial for human beings. If it was concentrated at the equator, that would be a real um, issue, but it tends to be concentrated in places that generally would like it to be warmer. Okay, so that's undeniable factor. So we see we've got this warming, more warming would, would actually save more lives on its own. Uh, it's not gonna burn up certain places, it's gonna be more in cold places, et cetera. Also, you know, in winter and at night, then people think, okay, but we're gonna reach a tipping point and it's gonna go out of control. So maybe it's like this now, but we're at the beginning of an exponential curve. And in fact, we are not, all the climate models, including the extreme ones, acknowledge that, uh, and I know some people are taking pictures of the slides, which you're more than welcome to do, but also if you just send me the resources at alexepstein.com or go to energytalkingpoints.com, all these things are up there. Uh, but if you, if you have, um, if you look at this, what you can see is that even the extreme climate models say that rising CO2 has a diminishing warming effect, or technically a logarithmic effect, which basically means every new molecule of CO2 has less warming power than the last. So what this means is that warming over time is expected to level off whatever it is. It's not gonna go out of control and the Earth is not gonna burn. And this is consistent with the history of the Earth where we've had much more CO2 in the atmosphere, far, far more than we could put in if we wanted to, if that was our goal, and yet the Earth did not burn up at all. It was a more tropical place. And so yeah, more CO2 will make the world somewhat of a more tropical place. That is not a catastrophe. So the final fact is, if you look at the other kind of variables like storms and floods, we don't have time to go into all of them, but if you take even the UN IPCC, this organization that has a lot of bad tendencies, even if you look at their scenarios, if you look at their scenarios, not their PR statements, nothing in there is something we could not master using fossil fuels. So for example, sea level rise, look at what we have. Extreme projections are three feet 
in 100 years. That is not something that would be a huge problem for a modern society with a lot of, of energy. By the way, if we go net zero and stop using fossil fuels, the projection is 18 inches in 100 years under this scenario. So basically what happens if you get rid of fossil fuels, you don't even stop all the, quote, climate change. You just totally gut yourself of the ability to deal with it and with everything else. So there's just, if you look at the actual evidence, it's really simple. The key is what I said from the beginning, the thinking method. Are you looking at the full context? Are you carefully weighing benefits and side effects? Carefully and then weighing benefits and side effects. If you do that, it's obvious that we should use more fossil fuels. And it is obvious that net zero, as I say, is a total failure to, uh, you know, to apply good thinking principles. It is based on ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels and what I call catastrophizing the side effects. Uh, net zero, sh again, should not be discussed. It is an evil policy. We should not be, our goal should not be to eliminate our CO2 emissions at all costs. As I say in my work, our goal should be to advance human flourishing. And we cannot advance human flourishing right now in this point in history by eliminating our emissions. And if we try to, if that is our goal, we are gonna keep killing people and keep causing misery. So what we need is a totally different policy. And I call this energy liberation or energy freedom is a platform I've actually built, which is also at energytalkingpoints.com. And what energy freedom means is we have the freedom to use all forms of energy, and that includes things like decriminalizing nuclear and making sure that the non-carbon alternatives have the best possible shot of succeeding. I think nuclear in particular has huge potential. And so if you do that, what you have is you have enormous amounts of energy now and for the foreseeable future, plus you have the best ability possible to develop truly scalable non-carbon alternatives. By the way, if you just do what we're talking about now, these policies that Canada and the US are following, I call this unilateral disempowerment, because what we do is we disempower ourselves, impoverish ourselves, and what does the rest of the world do? Does anyone think China's pursuing net zero? <laughs> Russia? Does anyone right now think Russia? Uh, India? I mean, a much better country than those other two, but still, no, it's not happening at all, and now they're admitting openly. It never made any sense, so it's just, they know, they are smart enough to know that net zero is suicide. And unfortunately, we are not yet smart enough to know, but I think those of us in this room can make a big difference if we support fossil fuels and if we support energy freedom. So let me just wrap up with a couple of thoughts. And this is a question you might want to ask. Why do our leaders think so badly about this? I have some interesting answers to this. But I just want to give you a final motivating set of remarks. So I mentioned that when I started off in Canada, it was frustrating because I knew that there were way better arguments than I could make at the time, but I just didn't, I hadn't worked them out. And now I've worked them out to a much better extent. Of course, in five years, I hope they'll be even way better, but they're definitely at a level now where I know they can persuade, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people, ultimately billions of people. And we have an unprecedented opportunity because I think we have much better arguments than existed five or 10 years ago, but also because the energy crisis has woken the world up. The world is finally open to the possibility that the anti-fossil fuel movement is wrong, because the anti-fossil fuel movement is the establishment, and in times of crisis, the establishment comes, uh, they become questioned. Now, it's not automatic. Just because you have a crisis doesn't mean people learn. It's just the opportunity because people have opened their minds, and that's the real key to this. Have people open their minds, and I believe they have, but we need to deal with that open mind with as much education as possible. That's been my motivation tonight. 
and in particular, I, I, I'm totally happy if everyone after this complains that I've mentioned the website energytalkingpoints.com too many times. I'll consider that a huge success because this is the website that's really my life's work available for free to everybody. And with these resources, if you all use these resources, and I really, really hope you do, you'll see you can just become incredibly, incredibly persuasive. You can really just copy and paste. You can send people links to everything. Make sure you're on the newsletter, resources at alexepstein.com, just email that. But you have this opportunity, you have an unlimited printing press. Think about this, the internet just gives you unlimited ability, and if you combine that with the best resources, you'll be very effective. Um, finally, oh, finally also, uh, I have a book, Fossil Future, which is right here, which I'm again sorry I didn't bring 500 copies. Uh, next, time, next time I'll think to do that. But this is, so the bad thing about Fossil Future is you do have to pay $20 for it or whatever they're charging. I couldn't get the publisher to give it away for free. Uh, the good thing is that if you want to be educated like from beginning to end and if you want to persuade open-minded people, I don't think there's anything like it in terms of how persuasive it is and I know some of you in this room really like it so I hope you'll affirm that and I really think that uh, this is going to be a huge, a huge resource but no matter what, use energytalkingpoints.com. And by the way, to get, you'll see in the resources email I sent out but you can also just go to fossilfuture.com to buy it in Canada, to buy it in bulk, whatever you want to do. Okay, so. Resources at alexepstein.com to get resources that you can share with people. If you want to reach me directly, alex at alexepstein.com. And if you have some sort of speaking event you want to potentially host me at, speaking at alexepstein.com. So we'll wrap up just so we remember. The key to thinking about this issue and persuading people is the full context, carefully weighing benefits and side effects, including you know, the benefits of fossil fuels, the climate mastery benefits, and negative and positive climate effects with precision. So that's the core of it. And then we have the 10 undeniable facts. Cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing. It's desperately needed by billions of people. Fossil fuels are uniquely able to provide it. Unreliable solar and wind are, are failing to replace fossil fuels. And fossil fuels give us an incredible climate mastery ability. And then in terms of the side effects, is that our emissions correlate with one degree C of warming and significant greening, that we have far more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths that warming occurs mostly in colder places at colder times during colder uh, seasons, uh, that the effect, you know, the greenhouse effect is a diminishing effect, not an accelerating effect, and that even the catastrophe scenarios, so-called, can all be dealt with if we have cost-effective energy. So if you get those thinking methods, you get those points, I think you can be an incredible force for prosperity in Alberta and beyond. So good luck and thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, thank you. All right, I think we're um, coming up, right, Dennis? And the person who won the book, I think we only had one, right? But make sure to come up to me and then somebody else has a really motivating story, maybe I'll give it to you. The other one. Absolutely. We're going to get to, yeah, Dennis and Alex are both going to be up here. And I've got a few dozen questions. So remember I said at the beginning, you know, oh, she wants keep yourself uh, watered and all that because we're going to be here for another 18 hours. Remember that? No. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it. We're going to try and wrap this up in about half an hour or something like that. So thank you so much. Mr. Alex Epstein, right there, people. Thank you. Thanks did you want to ask? Did you want to ask questions first? 
Well, I'll just start off. I know you got a bunch of questions. Alex, that was terrific. One of the things that I was thinking about uh, listening to you is you've got something very important coming up in the U.S. in a few days, and that's your U.S. presidential election. How do you it's view... It's not the presidential, it's, it's congressional election. The congressional election, yeah, excuse me, the midterm elections. How do you view the outcome of a Republican victory in the House and in the Senate in relation to energy security in North America? Um, is it, you guys can hear the lapel, right? So first of all, just thanks everyone for sitting. I know you guys are sitting a long time and I, I'm a very bad sitter myself. So I really appreciate those of you who can sit that long and I hope it was, hope it was entertaining and we'll try to make this entertaining too. So with the election, I mean, I, can, I wrote a, a, a thing on Twitter this week that went pretty viral about how the American energy crisis is mostly US Democrats fault. And for me, it's actually really sad uh, because I consider myself much more pro-freedom than both Republicans and Democrats, and I don't identify as either of those things. Um, but on this issue, which is my one real issue of expertise, uh, there's unfortunately a difference in kind uh, between the parties right now, because the you know Democrats are just totally bought into this anti-fossil fuel net zero agenda to the point where we had this thing called, it had different names, the Green New Deal, Build Back Better, was eventually passed as the, quote, Inflation Reduction Act. And even when it was in Build Back Better, which this guy Joe Manchin temporarily held up before he endorsed it, like one Democrat in the House voted against it out of hundreds. And it was this horrific policy and only one, including in the oil and gas district. So I've tried to make the Democrats see, like, you guys have a problem, you need to shift. Right now, yeah, the Republicans are way, way better on energy. And I, I, um, I think it came up in my bio, I work with a lot of elected officials. I have an open policy where I'll, I'll help any office that's interested in energy and freedom. Unfortunately, the overwhelming interest I get is from Republicans, and so I help them. Uh, and so on those policies, I think they've been way better, but also I think they're getting better because they're, in part, because they're working with me. So on energy, they're really good. Doesn't mean I agree with them on everything else, but on energy, it's a difference in kind. And I think if, if and when they get power, though, there's a huge difference between whether they use the power in a reactive way or a proactive way. And this is one thing I'm trying to influence. This is why I have something called an energy freedom platform, which you guys are welcome to rip off. It's again at energytalkingpoints.com. I can talk about it later, but, or you can just check it out. But it needs to be a positive agenda of what you want to do, not just criticizing Joe Biden for all the idiotic things he did. That should be 1% of the focus, right? The real thing is what is our vision for going forward? And I think, they really need a positive vision. Anyone who's pro-energy does, and I'm working with them to get that. Let me just follow up with one more question, and then we'll um, get to Carrie and the questions from the audience. Um, consider cognitive dissonance right now in terms of assuming the Republicans take the House and the Senate and the polarization that exists in society with those people who have really bought into the um, climate narrative really being pushed very aggressively by you know the, the WEF and the UN and so under the circumstances of, of um, what may happen with the polarization of society and with the Republican victory and a reinvigoration of the hydrocarbon industry do you see um, significant uh, perhaps militaristic or uh, anarchy occurring 
uh, in the United States because the United States is really the leader of the free world. And you know what we're seeing up here in Canada is the same kind of polarization. And it's so difficult to get over this issue of cognitive dissonance and, a, and the educational material. And you're absolutely right. What you're, what you're doing is brilliant. But do you see problems occurring with respect to the splitting of the US in particular as a result of what may happen with the Republican victory on energy? In general, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on sort of the evolution of cultural dynamics. And there's, there's always a danger of thinking that the present moment is uniquely bad, sometimes uniquely good as well, but think uniquely bad. It does seem to be more, like there seems to be more tribalism in the country and you know different factions and that's that kind of that can lead to violence definitely what i'm very confident in is that violence is much more normalized than it was before you know you saw the that footage of me was in 2014 i would seriously consider consider it whether i did it again in 2022 because we've had too many incidents in the u.s where the idea is that if you are mad or you think there's an injustice it's okay to commit violence and you'll generally get approval and so if it's like, hey, this guy's destroying the planet, uh, we beat the crap out of him, but you know, we're really angry about the planet. And there's a whole bunch of people who say, yeah, I, I understand. Like that Alex Epstein, he wasn't that good. So he's in the hospital, it's no, or worse, it's no big deal. Like there's that kind of thing, which is scary. I think the key, the key thing that can be done, because it's a scary dynamic, is that if you're advocating a new position, it is very, very important to be able to articulate it to everyone very clearly, and I think this is one thing that didn't happen in the Trump administration. So in the Trump administration, I mean, Donald Trump, I had many issues with him, but he had a, an amazingly good energy policy, and he had many, many good people in positions of power, but there was not much of an attempt to articulate the reasoning for these positions to the American people. So it just came across as Trump did this for no reason, it was just Trump being Trump. And then a lot of that just gets wiped out with the next administration. So I think this is a lesson for anyone. If you're, if you're imposing what you think is the right thing, you need to explain it, because when you explain it, you get more supporters, and you also take energy out of the opponents. One thing I've noticed is that, you know, when you have rational people supporting something in this field, a lot of the anti-fossil fuel people, they quickly become pretty meek once there's intelligent opposition because I talk about this in chapter 11, they've enjoyed what I call a moral monopoly, where if you're anti-fossil fuels, you get a halo over your head, and if you're pro-fossil fuels, you get devil horns, and it's just like a free pass to goodness to be anti-fossil fuels. And the more people who are thoughtful pro-fossil fuels, you no longer get that free pass, and a lot of these people are just, they just want the free approval. But if you, if, you, if you have a really intelligent argument, you take a lot of their energy away, and you take a lot of the public approval, and you're even seeing this with Just Stop Oil, uh, you know, the vandals, and you're seeing this with the activists, they're getting a lot less sympathy right now, and the more we clearly articulate our reasoning, they'll be even more marginalized, which they deserve to be totally marginalized. Yeah. Absolutely. So the first question here, I think everyone knows the answer, so I'm going to get you to kind of help me out on here. Everyone in this room probably agrees with you. How do you plan on getting your, uh, your message to those who aren't preaching to the converted? I think it's a dot com. What is the name of that dot com? <laughs> there you go, energytalkingpoints.com. Uh, yeah, well, I also, oh, well, yeah, so to just say that, let me just ask, let me take a poll. How many of you know at least one person who's not super pro fossil fuels? Can anyone raise your hand? Uh, if you don't, that's surprising. 
but uh, a lot of you do. So one thing is you can reach out to them, but the key to reach, reaching out to people successfully is you want to find resources and arguments that are really designed to persuade people who expect to disagree. Most resources for most positions are designed to just appeal to people who already agree. So while I, I polled you at the beginning, I knew this was going to be maybe the friendliest audience I ever had, but the arguments I gave you are arguments that I will make at Harvard or anywhere else. So, and I, by the way, I just saw that my book is being sold in the Harvard bookstore. So, you know, you're, uh, it, it, it hasn't totally gone to, to waste. So yeah, and energytalkingpoints.com, as you said. What is driving this current way of thinking? Why the push to get away from fossil fuels and who's pushing this message and why? So this is a big, I, this is basically the question I asked you to ask. This is a very big question. It is answered very thoroughly in chapter three of Fossil Future. So, and also on energytalkingpoints.com, if there is a summary of Fossil Future, and I have a, a decent answer there, but I'll just give you an indication. So when you ask who, I actually am of the view that it's more that there are ideas running the society than there are people running the society. There are, I think mostly the people running things are not like leaders of a conspiracy. I think they are just kind of people who have bought into bad ideas in one way or another. So I think what happened historically is that um, there's always been a movement that says that human impact is evil and should be eliminated. But this for many centuries, somebody, you know, philosopher Rousseau had this view. You have different people have this view, but it was a very marginal view for a long time. People who generally live in nature know that human impact is necessary. You know, you look at a lot of old writing, like in the, on the frontier, people are not worshiping unimpacted nature. They want to enjoy nature, but they don't worship it as something we shouldn't change. Um, what happened, though, is the more prosperous society gets, actually, the more, if you don't have education, the more it's plausible that impact is bad because you treat the amazing high impact society you have as the given. And then you're sort of, you hear, oh, impact is bad, so let's not do any more, let's not rock the boat. But you don't realize that the whole reason you have this stable, amazing world, stable feeling world, is because you've impacted it so much. So there's what I call the anti-impact movement. And what really happened historically, and I think this is documented, is that the anti-capitalist movement in the 60s and 70s decided to have an anti-impact focus. And one of my favorite authors, Ayn Rand, has a really good book called The New Left, the anti-industrial revolution that documented this when it was happening. And they basically said, look, you know, we can't really be pro-Soviet anymore. We don't have the Vietnam War anymore. Like, what's gonna be our cause? And it was basically what they called the environment. And one of the advantages they had was that the pro-freedom people didn't have a good positive environmental philosophy. And so people associated a bad environment with capitalism, even though capitalism leads to a good environment. So the anti-capitalist people kind of owned this issue of the environment, and they packaged together clean air and clean water with getting rid of all of our impact. And again, this is a big answer. But what they have, so, and then, but once they decided to make it political, they put it in all the schools. So everyone in all the schools is learning that our impact is evil and it's self-destructive. The world is gonna destroy us. And so this just saturates everyone for decades. I'm 42, certainly saturated my education even before. And so now we have a world that has this hostility toward our impact and thinks that it's bad. And then what happens is we tend to pick the things that have the biggest impact and fossil fuels in a sense have the biggest impact and the people who are against impact and against capitalism has, have focused their efforts on fossil fuels. But I think the real thing that's going on is all these anti-impact ideas that have been spread for 50 years are sort of leading us 
off a cliff, including net zero as an example. Net zero is the dumbest idea imaginable because why? Why? Don't clap yet. Let me explain. Let me explain. We are making our goal as a society to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. How does that make any sense? Does the, does the UN have a, does the, all these companies have net zero goals? Do they have energy abundance goals? Do they have freedom goals? Do they have prosperity goals? No, no, and no. Their number one goal of all the companies, all the institutions, all the governments that everyone agrees on as the top goal of civilization is don't impact climate by the year 2050. This is a pure example of anti-human impact thinking, that you think humans are evil and we shouldn't impact nature and you're focused on this. We should be thinking about advancing human flourishing as much by 2050 through freedom and through fossil fuels. So this anti-human anti thinking about the world has just saturated so much. The, the good thing, though, is it's pretty easy to replace because once you point out a pro-human way of thinking about the world and that this is anti-human, uh, a lot of, most people, when it comes down to it, are pro-human. So that's a long answer, but it's an even longer issue. Awesome. Well, we got rid of, we got rid of a few of these uh, questions, okay, so that these was, that was awesome. Don't ask such good questions. <laughs> Why are oil and gas companies not speaking out against net zero? What are they afraid of? <sighs> that was a question from one of you out that's there. That's a good so. question. Well, so, I mean, the approximate thing they're afraid of is ESG because right? the ESG was this genius move by the anti-fossil fuel movement to impose policies that voters would never agree with via status-seeking corporations, and it was a masterstroke. I have to give them a lot of strategic credit because voters didn't want net zero, but they could get not only Nike to do it, but Shell to say we should be net zero. They could get the oil companies to say net zero. So it was really, and, and what happens is then you get, it, once that saturated the investment world, a lot of companies feel like, understandably like we can't raise money unless we're saying net zero i think by far the better approach would have been to say hey look if we care about emissions it's like we believe it, that the only way to lower global emissions is to do so through cost competitive through making low carbon energy cost competitive it does nothing to ruin canada or ruin america when everyone else is going to be emitting co2 so you could make that argument but making a net zero commitment was very strategically bad and it was very dishonest because nobody is going to be, I'll challenge anyone on this, nobody is going to be truly net zero anytime soon. If you want to talk in a scalable way. Yeah, a rich company like Salesforce can buy up a bunch of mangroves and claim that they bring in CO2, but there aren't enough mangroves or trees in the world to, to uh, absorb the CO2. So these offset schemes are just doing non-scalable things. You're basically hoarding a limited supply of offsets and then putting a halo over your head. It's ridiculous. Thing. So net zero is a, it is a lie that anyone is doing it, that anyone is close to doing it, and it is a dangerous lie because it has, it has incredibly reinforced these net zero policies. The people will say, hey, if Total and Shell and, and uh, insert a BP, if they're saying they're going to be net zero, then why should we object to these net zero policies? These oil companies have really, uh, you know, really sold their souls into disaster by advocating net zero, to put it mildly. So just, just to follow up on that, Alex, it seems that some of the major corporations, the board of directors are starting to push back on this ESG nonsense. Well, it's, yeah, a good thing is that there's getting to be a response, and 
to use my usual thing, energytalkingpoints.com. If you look up ESG, I have a positive alternative to ESG, which I call long-term value creation. There's also another positive alternative called excellence capitalism by a really interesting guy named Vivek Ramaswamy who's done some really good work and they have this new fund that's for excellence versus ESG. So there is a lot of pushback and I think the thing that's happened is, you know, in 2020 ESG was peaking, early 2020, because oil was crashing. And so the ESG people could say, not only are we moral, but we make more money. They're like, oh, it's a better ROI. No, it was one moment in time when oil stocks weren't doing well. Now they're getting killed because oil stocks are doing so well. And Larry Fink and company are now going to Texas and begging like, hey, don't stop buying our stuff and et cetera, et cetera. So because there's a financial swing, people are now open to it. And also people realize, hey, this energy crisis is being caused by ESG. You know, Elon Musk, who's a good bellwether of kind of popular opinion and coolness, he's now against ESG. So there's a good sign, but we have, I mean, we just got to eradicate this, this thing. And again, there's a positive alternative long-term value creation. But the idea of every business should follow standards set by the anti-capitalist UN, that idea should be purged. I mean, peacefully, I should say. Peaceful, I mean, purged intellectually, just so I don't get quoted out of context. So next question, how do we influence Canadian oil and gas companies when many are over 100% foreign owned? And then the kind of a second part, what do you think is the key to flipping the oil and gas narrative from shame to energy pride? <laughs> it's a good, the shame is good. I, I, one thing I learned in Canada in particular, but I learned it with the US too, is do you know that the number one trigger word for executives, the number one word they would say that clearly evoked negative emotion was apologize. Like, again, we gotta stop apologizing. And I just realized- Sorry, well, sorry, sorry. It's all sorry. Right. But not, not even in that cliche Canadian way, but just the, the, the broader apology, maybe they're related. But this, this uh, no, this, this really, this industry feeling like it's apologizing for its existence. So I really do think the key is the moral clarity that I've, I've laid out tonight and using these arguments, really using this case for a fossil future because when it comes down to it, if you have enough moral clarity, you will not do the things that they're doing. And, and I think the best thing to do is, look, they have a hard job. They've had a, it's not like, I don't wanna just beat on them and act like it's an easy job. It's a hard job, as I said. These are companies that are not experts in persuasion. So what they tend to do is just do what will be like. They tend to hire PR people, you know, who are from Edelman or some other place that's mainstream uh, and the thing I say to them is, like, your PR person often, they're not even convinced that what you do is good. So how are they going to convince somebody else? So I would say, instead of hiring those people, go to a free website called energytalkingpoints.com, because I, do I don't do consulting in this field anymore. No, and just copy those arguments or learn those arguments, and that's actually from somebody who himself is persuaded and has arguably persuaded more people on this issue than anyone in the world. So why not use that instead of these ridiculous arguments from people who don't agree with it themselves? So I think that's, I think it, the core is the clarity that comes from the right arguments. I'm just gonna keep saying that and then sharing it because I know that it's, it's powerful. I mean, one really cool thing, have any of you heard of Yenmi Park? Anyone in this room heard of her? This amazing, amazing woman who came from North Korea and has this amazing story. I highly recommend watching her TED talk. An hour before this, I just opened up and I was curious what was happening on Twitter. And she just posted the moral case for fossil fuels and fossil future. And like, the world needs this more than ever. Somebody shared 
my message with Yenmi Park, and who knows how many pro-freedom people are gonna learn about it because of that. So sharing really good arguments is so powerful. Don't ever believe that it doesn't make a difference. Next question. Why the obsession with wind and solar, given they also have many negative side effects and are expensive? And second part, why does nuclear have a bad rap? Okay, this gives me an opportunity to give away the second book. But you cannot answer this if you've heard me answer it. But this is the key to understanding the answer to this question, is answering the question I'm gonna ask. What is the only source of energy the green movement has consistently supported throughout its history? Okay, wind and solar, no. What else? Wood chips? Tidal, no. What? Nuclear, no. What's that? Bat power? Oh, man power, that's funny. That is in a sense true. Um, anyone else? No. Don't, no. What? Hamster wheel, that's actually close. So I'm sorry nobody has gotten the answer. No. So human is the best answer I've heard so far. The answer is imaginary energy. No, it's real. I mean this literally. Because if you look at the history of the green movement, it is one instance after another of, of enthusiastically supporting energy that is not viable and then opposing it once it is viable. So there was support of nuclear until nuclear became practical. There was support of natural gas until that became scalable. Then it became called fracking. There was support of hydro, opposition to hydro. So why does the green movement only support imaginary energy? Because green is essentially anti-energy. Green means minimal or no impact. But the very nature of energy is it is using, it is literally work, force times distance, the capacity to do work. That literally means impacting nature. The more energy we use, the more we impact nature. So if you're against impacting nature, you will be against energy. They claim to be only against the side effects of energy, but actually they're at the core against the benefits of energy, because the benefits of energy allow humans to proliferate and prosper. And if you believe in getting rid of human impact, you do not want human beings to proliferate and prosper. Just like if somebody said to you, hey, I want to eliminate bear impact, you'd know that they want to kill the bears. And the same thing is true if you say, I want to eliminate human impact. So the reason that they support solar and wind is because they don't work. And the other reason they support them is because they don't think about them. They think of them as natural and non-impact, but actually in terms of the landscape, they have the greatest impact because they're dilute energy and they're unreliable. So that means you need a lot more material, plus you need all the backup from the reliable. So they actually have more impact but people don't think about that. But if, they, if and when they become viable, the green movement will hate them and talk about all the impact they have. So you can't make terms with this movement. You can't act like, oh, the green energy movement just wants more energy that's cleaner. No, 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 no. That's not what the movement wants. They want less energy and ultimately less humanity in the world. And so the key is to be, I talk about this in the book a lot, for human flourishing. So if you're for human flourishing, you want to maximize our positive impacts and minimize our negative or human harming impacts, but you do not want to be anti-impact. And one of my failures is so many executives, even who are fans of mine, still talk about like minimizing their impact. Please stop doing that. 
Talk about minimizing your negative impacts. But no self-respecting species wants to minimize its impact. Imagine a lion that wanted to minimize its impact. That would be a pitiful lion. Same deal for a human. Why are the Democrats so set on canceling projects like Keystone XL? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, so the thing is, when you have this idea that it's bad to impact the world in general, and then it's particularly bad to have CO2 emissions in particular, and you see that the world is not actually following this significantly, my view of the energy crisis is we've only followed the green energy agenda 1% and it's caused a crisis. No, we haven't even reduced fossil fuel use in the world. They're trying to get rid of it in 27 years. We haven't even reduced it, but just by slowing the growth, we caused a global energy crisis where you know, Europe is now afraid of winter, like it's Game of Thrones or something like that. Right? This is so embarrassing, but what happens is, so the people aren't actually supporting the net zero agenda, really, but the activists, what they see is they want to attack fossil fuels in any way they can. And what they found is that attacking pipelines was a fairly effective thing to do because you can stand in front of them, you can be an activist about them. And the lack of confidence of both Canada and the US has been really bad on this issue. But they're basically just kind of mindlessly attacking anything they can think of. And if you make arguments to them like, well, it'll actually reduce emissions more to have the pipeline because we won't put it on a truck and stuff, but you're still conceding that our goal should be to eliminate emissions. And they can say, no, no, wait, if you don't build the pipeline, then you'll produce less oil. And guess what? They were right. They were right. So it wasn't a good argument. They actually, in a sense, did reduce CO2 emissions by shutting down uh, the pipeline. So pipeline is amazing because it's the most cost-effective, clean and safe way to transport you know, many forms of energy. But I want to just caution against buying it. We want to reframe it in terms of you know, we want to advance human flourishing on Earth. Our goal should not be to minimize human impact on Earth. And do not justify your existence and your policies by how much they reduce emissions. That is a big mistake. And nothing, by the way, everything the oil and gas industry is going to do, I love the oil and gas industry and the coal industry for that matter, but make no mistake, you guys are increasing emissions in the world. That is what is going to happen if we continue to use oil and gas and people continue to flourish. That is going to happen. Now, you can say, oh, we're going to emit less because it's going to replace coal. But really, the world needs way more energy. So we're going to use, hopefully, if we want to flourish, more coal and more gas. So I highly, highly caution against justifying yourself in terms of we're getting rid of emissions. What you can say is, look, we're exploring innovations that reduce emissions. I think nuclear is the most promising thing there. But to say, like, we're going to be net zero, or the reason we're good is because we're lowering emissions, I think that's, a, that's not true, and I, and I think people won't be very persuaded by it. So this, this one is kind of a, an amalgamation of a bunch of questions. And so here in Alberta, we are heavily mandated by government, federal government, let me say, more so in terms of oil and gas. Yeah. What would an independent Alberta be able to do much better being independent than having to deal with the federal government? Well, I have no expertise on this, and I have a question for you guys, and this might be offensive, but didn't you guys vote in those idiots in Alberta? No, I mean, didn't Alberta vote in like that terrible party that did all that stuff? No, no, I'm curious. So, 
So, Alex, Alex, Mahatma Gandhi once said, if you elect a fool as your leader, then you are well represented. So there were some people who foolishly did that. Yeah, so I think, I think the key is with, and so I'm not an, at all an expert in Canadian politics and don't have strong positions here. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the Canadian government is at the moment at least absolutely horrific and tyrannical in many ways and including in energy and what they are mandating is absolutely suicidal and incredible that it can continue in a global energy crisis where we're seeing exactly the consequences of this so i think people should do whatever they can to try to overcome this but i do think that let's just say even in alberta you really need the and i think you guys recognize this you really need the educational effort it's certainly not just the people within these borders are automatically going to make amazing energy decisions that doesn't seem to have born been borne out by reality although on average they're probably going to make a lot better energy decisions than canada as a whole i would guess Can you please come to Canada more frequently to do cross-country speaking tours, especially in central Canada? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, if, if people want to host me, and, and to be honest, like, I'm a... So th this is the thing. I, I really enjoy speaking. This has been one of my favorite audiences of Sirius. It's, it's really fun for me. I do consider my primary job in the world to be as a thinker and a writer because whatever I can do in terms of a speech, I think I can do more in terms of creating valuable resources. So the kind of the way I limit it is I do speaking, but it's a side thing and I, and I don't do unpaid speaking anymore just because I have so much demand and I only want to do so much of it. So if someone wants to sponsor that, I would love to do it. I think it could make a big difference. But I also think if no one wants to sponsor it, you guys can make a big difference by using all the points that are now freely available to you. Yeah. I'm going to get uh, Dr. Dennis Modry here to wrap things up a little bit here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been quite the evening. You know, I always used to say, and I still do, if I learn one new thing a day, it's a great day. And I tell you, I think you and I, we've learned many things this evening. Thanks very much, Alex. It's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, we have a little bit of a gift for you. Really? You know, you're, you're into education, we're into education, and we got a hat and a shirt from the Alberta Prosperity Project, and I hope you wear it from time to time. I thought it was going to be one very of the grateful. big hats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And in closing, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to keep you, um, but I'd like you to very seriously consider that what we are doing with the Alberta Prosperity Project very much aligns with Alex's educational program that he has embarked on, and I am a subscriber to Energy Talking Points. I hope you will also become a subscriber, and at the same time, I hope you'll consider seriously becoming a member of the Alberta Prosperity Project and consider very much helping us save this amazing province save our energy industries, and help us to get to the amazing prosperity that this province can have with the right governance and the right policies. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alex, and I hope you have a wonderful trip home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Dr. Dennis Modry and Alex Epstein right here, people. Thank you. As Dennis said, please do come up, become a member. Please volunteer. We can always use more volunteers. It takes such a, a group of people to put an event on like this. And if you enjoyed the event tonight, please tell your friends, and they will tell two friends and so on and so on, and then we can all have good hair. I just thought I'd let you know that we are opening the bar. Mix and mingle. Stick around. Talk to people. Alex is going to be here for a little while, too. So thank you very, very much on behalf of Alberta Prosperity Project. Good night. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that. Um, it was the second time I actually watched that. And, and, and it's, it's still amazing the amount of uh, knowledge and breadth that uh, Alex Epstein has and the way he's able to convey that uh, so good. One of the things I did want to mention is that that was an event that we did last October. And we have so many other events that we want to do this coming, well, 2024. But right now we're actually doing the, if you go on the albertaprosperityproject.com website and you go under events, we are doing the APP ambassador tour right now with Corey Morgan, uh, Dr. Dennis Modry and Chris Scott. And uh, if you actually scroll through the dates here, so I'm just scrolling through right now and it looks like the next one will be uh, the weekend of November 10th, and that's going to be in Calgary at the Marty Loop Community Hall. And then on the 12th in Redcliffe, which is basically just outside of Medicine Hat. And then down here, we got the 17th, which is in Red Deer. And uh, 18th is in uh, Bingley, which is basically Rocky Mountain House. And then on the 19th, Sherwood Park, which you can say Edmonton, although I think people in Sherwood Park don't say that they're from Edmonton, <laughs> from my understanding is. But either way, if it's something that you guys want to go to, those are events that are listed right now. I don't know if we'll have events after that, just because of the uh, uh, coming into December and people have uh, uh, parties and they get together for the Christmas season, but then we'll be starting back up again in January and February. So those are events. And of course we can always use volunteers for that, but I did want to get back to a few of these, uh, the questions and comments that had come up about this uh, particular um, presentation. Uh, again, this was at the Westin in Calgary last October. There was about 500 people there. Uh, it was a great mix and mingle event. So what you saw was, again, just a small portion. We had a couple of speakers before that. I know we had Dr. Dennis Modry speaking. We had uh, Michael Binion speaking, who is also a, uh, a big energy uh, guy. And, uh, and then we had a couple of other people. And, um, and it, was, it was just a great entire evening to, to be at. So if an, an opportunity comes up like that, I will say to you, try and snap that up, snap up tickets for that because it's, it's so good. It was so good. A um, couple of the comments that did come up, which I thought, you know, the reason I wanted to present this again is because we do have so many good webinars. We do have so many good speakers who are speaking on behalf of the Alberta Prosperity Project. And uh, Sandra says, that was freaking awesome. Dang, I have a lot to learn, but it's apparent many others in the same camp with me. I hope everyone feels it's important to extend their knowledge base and uses this site to do just that. And of course, this site that we're talking about, everybody knows, everybody knows. Yes, it is. EnergyTalkingPoints.com. So 
the last time I was on here was probably a few months ago and there's always more stuff that he adds. And, uh, and I didn't realize that he had actually put in a couple of things. Um, he spoke at, um, uh, I know he spoke at a congressional hearing sometime in September. I think it's in here somewhere. Um, and, and somebody actually had even posted on here, um, one of these comments here, was this forwarded to the Trudeau government? In other words, was this presentation forwarded to the Trudeau government? And was it also forwarded to Daniel Smith? You know what? Most of the time, these discussions um, are supposed to be at least acknowledged and uh, spoken to uh, by the experts to the government officials. But you know what? If you think this is awesome, and you want to tag it and re and share this and, and tag Danielle and you want to tag any of the MLAs or even your municipal uh, councillors, please do, please do, because that's, again, the way that we can get out. Knowledge is power, you know, uh, spread the word on, on what's going on with all this. Um, and, uh, of course, you can even pass that on energytalkingpoints.com and resources at alexepstein.com. And that's basically how we ended up doing a webinar with him was we reached just reached out to Alex at Alex Epstein and uh, he was a great guy to get a hold of. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm totally into that. We did the webinar and then he flew up and uh, what an amazing event that was. So yes, under the uh, energy talking points, uh, .com. Um, Beyond that, there wasn't a lot of questions. Oh, which I'm is so excited. I'm going to do that again. Pressing the wrong button. The, um, there wasn't a lot of questions from particular people, but I did want to say that thank you again for at least tuning in. Um, everyone's so busy right now. And, um, but if you're busy, you know, share this and you can always look back at this after the fact, it doesn't have to be the live version. Although they, the nice thing about having the lives, and I've said this many, many times before is that you can make comments and we try and get back to the comments right away. And, and the questions, and otherwise we would just be able to just post this willy nilly. And, uh, and a lot of these videos, even in terms of what we're doing for the, um, uh, uh, the uh, United Conservative Party AGM, uh, Chris Scott and uh, Marco Van Hugenboss are actually doing uh, a series where they're interviewing the board uh, members or board electorals. I'm gonna just go to here. If you go to the chrisandcarryshow.com, uh, we actually have a whole list of links here. It's under the UCP board candidates. And uh, again, go, you can scroll through here. You can find out who's uh, running for president uh, and who's running for secretary. There's links to their bios. There's links, uh, in this case, uh, Joanny has her bio on here as well. But there's also the link that takes you to the interview that was done uh, with, uh, as an example, I'm just going to go, Joanny. And there it is. So you can go and you can take a look at those. Uh, I think these are all very beneficial for, uh, again, knowledge is power, right? Exactly what we want to do. So just a couple of quick things I did want to wrap up with, with Alex's. Um, again, he reiterated a lot of this stuff, but I basically wanted to say, if there's people that are coming up and saying, you know what, you guys don't know what you're talking about in terms of, uh, of, uh, oil and gas and fossil fuels and uh, the more we use it, it's dirty energy. Benefits of fossil fuels frees up time for human flourishing. Uh, CO2 is essentially plant food. 
And, uh, and of course, we couldn't do what we do without machines. And that's basically how we do it. So, you know, like, like Alex was saying, is that, believe it or not, there's 6 billion people on the planet right now that lack energy. And so in order to do human flourishing, we actually need more energy, not less energy. Um, more people die from cold than from heat. So you can kind of figure out exactly what you need to do with that. Um, we become more safe uh, from uh, climate disasters because of our flourishing. And um, there's, there's a whole, we could do an entire series of webinars on pro-human versus anti-human or transhuman agenda. And maybe we will, maybe we'll put something together about that. And uh, of course I'm very pro-human. I want us to flourish as much as possible. And um, I don't wanna do the net zero thing and say that we're gonna be uh, anti-human and let's get rid of humans because we're just bugs on the planet. That is not at all what we should be doing. And uh, and it's a shame that schools and, uh, and even the media seem to be indoctrinating people with that. So. Having said all that, I hope you guys enjoyed this evening. And of course, we do these every Wednesday, even though it's a Sunday. And uh, and I said the reason is because I wanted to at least get this across because of what's uh, what's been happening in the media lately. But on Wednesday, we have Dr. William Mackis on. So uh, if you don't know who Dr. Mackis is, he is uh, an oncologist. And he's been doing a series of talks in regards to uh, what's happening with the vaccines. He's... Uh, He's got a website out there that uh, talks about vaccine injuries. And so if you're really interested in that, please join us on Wednesday. It could be so controversial that I don't think we're going to be broadcasting it on YouTube. And actually, we're going to have a discussion about that tomorrow with our group, uh, our operations team, to find out exactly where we want to do it. Otherwise, uh, we will be broadcasting it on Wednesday. Watch for that. And I uh, hope to see you guys back again on Wednesday. And with that, I'm going to wrap up. And wish you guys an amazing Sunday and a good start of your week. And we'll see you guys. Thanks a lot.